Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. This is episode 74, uh, Shrooms and Brew, Interview to Bessence. So uh, before we get started with this interview, how are you doing, Teresa? Uh, I'm doing all right. I took some capsules that had a bunch of like wild herbs ground up in it that I have had for years. I took those last night. I'm feeling pretty good. I was feeling a little bit under the weather yesterday evening. And uh, this, this episode is an interview with a person who calls himself Tobessens. Yeah, we don't know him as Tobessens. This is a pseudonym he's using for this interview. <laughs> um, because he doesn't want the CIA or Homeland Security after him. Right, right, right. <laughs> so uh, how do we know Tobessens? Well, I first met him when I was a, uh, a lead teacher at an outdoor education place, and uh, he was an intern there. And, um, you know, we worked together there, and that's how I met him. And, you know, we knew of each other for many years. Um after that, and then Teresa and I started doing these antisocial socials at our our last uh, place we rented, a trailer out in the country, um, where we'd have a fire and we'd invite people to um, bring anything that they wanted to swap. You know, we'd lay out a tarp and all this dumpster dive stuff. We were getting an excess of it. So uh, we'd lay out what we, you know, would give away or trade, and uh, people would come. And Tobessens and his girlfriend were um, two of the people that came, I'd say, probably the most regularly. And, uh, yeah, I kind of introduced Tobessens to scavenging, and as you'll hear in the interview, like, he really took off with it. <laughs> I mean, he's he's had some good luck and uh, and maybe honed some skills to help him along the way. And he also somehow does a really good impression of Kermit the Frog, <laughs> just naturally. Yeah, beer helps oil that wheel. <laughs> so Tobessens is a really uh, – Savvy mushroom guy. He knows a lot about mushrooms and has put a lot of effort into mushrooms in particular. Um, he's also got a, kind of a, a smattering of skills with, uh, you know, other naturalist, um, what would I say, categories, you know, plants, stuff like that, some primitive skills. But I'd say mushrooms is where he really shines and scavenging. You know, I'd say I'd have to put a feather in his cap for that, too. I've heard him, uh, like he'll share in this interview, you know, scavenging stuff that not everybody finds every day. So it's pretty awesome. Um, for this interview, you know, this was done a couple months ago at this point. So this is, uh, you know, a little bit, um, dated, but COVID-19 was happening. It's still happening. We were trying to do the social distancing and, um, Tobessens knew that my favorite beer is Dragon's Milk, which is a uh, bourbon barrel aged, um, really good stuff. A bourbon barrel aged stout, um, 11% alcohol percentage. Oh my God. So You'll hear as we uh, we drink this um, into the interview how it has more and more of – it's kind of the third person in this interview, the dragon's milk, I'd say. Shrooms and brew. 
And trying to pass this damn iPad back and forth to try to respect social distancing, it was ridiculous. I wouldn't do that again. I think we'd just, like, take turns going up to the iPad to talk because getting drunk, passing this iPad back and forth, it was a bad combination. And so I've had to edit the crap out of this, um, piece together stuff, because I kept cutting myself off and everything. Luckily, I I mainly just cut myself off. So you'll hear us kind of butt in as this interview goes and add parts, you know, that we, I feel like we need to add to make sense of what we're talking about. But yeah, this was in a city park in Durham. And, um, like I said, we butchered. I, I butchered this interview, but it was still salvageable. Uh, Tobeson shares a lot of uh, good stuff here. And uh, you look like you want to share something, Teresa? I was just going to say that this is the second interview that we've done outside of ourselves. I think that's still accurate. I don't think we've... Yeah, second interview. Okay. So, um, so anyway, yeah, I did uh, an interview with Gumby's mom a number of months ago, and that was just me and her, and so this interview is Gumby and Tobessens. Yeah, and Tobessens is now an outdoor educator himself, uh, works mainly with kids as I did. He so Gumby mini-me. No, I, would, I don't think he'd want to be called that, and I would not call him that. <laughs> but uh, hope you enjoy the interview, and uh, here we go. All right, I am here with Tobessens, and uh, he's somebody I know from way back. We uh, He works at the place I used to work at, and we both used to work there, um, gosh, I don't know how many years ago. Probably like 11 years ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago, and how the time flies. And then uh, I know Tobessens from attending the uh, antisocial socials that Teresa and I were trying to have for a while, um, where we trying to give away free stuff that we'd scavenge. But... Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, start the interview, Tobessens, by asking you, like, I know you do a lot concerning nature with your own development and connection with it mm-hmm. and sharing it with others, mm-hmm. and I know one of your uh, big passions in nature is mushrooms, so can you tell us about your favorite mushrooms? What what gets you into it, and, you know, why mushrooms? Um, so I would say that without a doubt, I mean, so one thing that's important to think about here. Um, in central North Carolina is that they're going to be mushrooms there. I mean, there are mushrooms all around, whether or not they're consumable. They're just mushrooms everywhere. Uh, but, uh, in terms of my favorite mushrooms, uh, they all happen to be mushrooms, uh, that most people can consume. Um, right now we're in the fall and I would say my fall favorite, uh, favorite would be the ringless honey mushrooms. That's, uh, where my name comes from. Um, you often see them in your front yard. Uh, especially uh, in a neighborhood that uh, I live live in. Uh, There are just ringless honey mushrooms everywhere. Um, They're all over the place. And um, uh, there's a lot of mushroom groups on Facebook, and people are always like, oh, what's this mushroom in my front yard? And all the people who know what it is are like, okay, it's ringless honey mushroom. Just, like, like look it up. Like, just, like, a lot of them will have, like, a pinned post of, like, okay, your mushroom is probably ringless honey mushroom. If it's not, then follow these steps. (laughs) And... um, it's, um, I really like it because it's really abundant everywhere. Um, I see it a lot in uh, um, neighborhoods that have like really big trees that are at the end of their life. And what it grows on is the root system on the ground. So you'll often see ringless honey mushrooms where trees have been cut down, but you don't see the roots. Uh, you know, they're on the ground. Or you might see it growing on a stump. Very rarely, if a tree is like really sick, you'll see it growing on the trunk. Um, at that point, that's pretty bad. I mean, in the sense that that tree would probably fall sooner rather than later, which if it's near your house, that's kind of problematic. Um, but the, I mean, the fall is a really good time for a lot of different mushrooms. Uh, we move on to winter, uh, where you would find bluets. Uh, bluets are a little kind of blue purple mushroom. Um, 
they they turn kind of brown over time and they have this indescribable deep intense flavor um they smell like frozen orange juice when they're fresh and um they just uh they 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 brown very well when you're cooking them and it's just like an indescribable flavor uh that grows on leaf litter and it grows when a lot a lot of other plants are growing so it's a lot easier to find it uh sometimes you'll see little lumps on the ground uh poking out and you just gotta move the leaf litter out the way and those are your bluets um and it moves on into spring a lot of people like morel mushrooms and like i can't find them they're really elusive and so that kind of affects my opinion on them uh i'm i'm a big fan of just like nature that's really accessible to people and not that morels are inherently inaccessible um but definitely when it comes to the spring like how like later spring that's when you're going to find your first chicken of the woods Mm -hmm. uh which was my favorite uh my first wild mushroom that i ever ate and that was with uh gumby uh, many years ago. Oh, God, that would have been like nine, ten years ago. Um, so, uh, I really like that mushroom. It doesn't need to be cooked thoroughly. It's very bright, uh, orange on the top, and it'll either be yellow or white on the bottom. Those are technically two different species. Um, the science of it, it, I don't know, it's relevant if you want to keep up with it, but like, you can teach, you can still teach that information without knowing, say, the Latin name. Um, I do teach people Latin name because I'm kind of a nerd. Um, and moving on uh, from spring into summer, um, you'll still find chicken in the woods, and that's still like a mushroom I look forward to. But really, it's the the American Caesar's mushrooms. Um, uh, Gumby, are you familiar with those mushrooms? I am. I think I. You're. Is that the same as the fault Caesar's amanita? That's the name uh, I know. Uh, amanita jacksoni might be another name that you know. Yeah, kind of yellow. Yeah. I ate it once. I thought it tasted sort of cheesy to me, which is funny because I like cheese, but that was unpleasant in the mushroom. And we just recorded a mushroom podcast we're calling Smurf Village that we're releasing this Sunday. It's uh, Wednesday right now. And, um, yeah, our malaria, honey mushrooms, that played a big part. We were talking about how the largest organism on the planet is a mycelial network of our malaria that's 2,000 years old. And, uh, yeah, just all kinds of crazy stuff. And, man, you said something else about mushrooms. that Oh, chicken of the woods. Yeah, my God. Teresa and I, we were, uh, as our listeners know, we spend the, mount- the, the summer in the mountains we found chicken of the woods everywhere. She went to take a shit one day, and she just goes up in the woods and comes back and, like, looks startled. And I'm like, my God, what came out of you? And she's like, no, I found a whole tree full of chicken of the woods. And it was, I've never seen so many chicken of the woods on one tree. It was glorious. But your question about the Caesars, yeah, I think maybe once I've eaten the fault Caesars. Gotcha. I would say of all the mushrooms that I've listed, um... The Amania jacksoni, that is my favorite mushroom. I really like teaching about that mushroom because people, um, when people are taught about uh, mushrooms in Anamina genus, god damn, (laughs) uh, what a mouthful, Um, there's a lot of fear associated with that. And uh, uh, what has been described as mycophobia, the fear of mushrooms, kind of like this irrational fear of mushrooms. And I'm not saying that you should eat mushrooms lightly. You really shouldn't eat any wild food lightly. Um, you have to know what it is before you eat it, which sounds obvious, but people don't always do that. And that's something um, I teach adults this. I teach children this. Um, I, uh, I, I'm actually, I'm certified to sell mushrooms. Uh, I took a class approved by the FDA and I can sell mushrooms and that mushroom isn't on that list, which to me makes it even more special that like I don't have this um, 
uh, obligation to turn it into a commodity, uh, at least legally. I could sell it illegally uh, if I really wanted to. Uh, but I really just like keeping those to myself. I really like the cheesy, fishy flavor. Um, I think it's really cool. I make tacos out of it. It's, um, and they're so bright. They're so beautiful. They're just like aesthetically pleasing. Um, I feel like Anamita, Anamita, damn, you know what I'm saying. Anamita, fucking hell. Half a, half a beer in. I'm already slurring my words. Um, wow. Uh, anyway, Jackson's, uh, Caesar's mushroom. Um, that's a very special mushroom to my heart. Um, and, uh, I'm just a really big fan. I mean, just like mushrooms in general, I could definitely go on and on about like, I don't know. It's really all thinking about seasonally. Um, I, I've been trying to live my life more seasonally. And so like, I try to think about questions like that of like, um, things that are affected by seasons, like your favorite mushroom, for example, or like your favorite plant. I mean, like the plants I find here, um, it's October now. It's kind of warm. Thanks global warming. Um, it, I mean, there are still, there's still jewelweed to be found. I really love that plant. Um, I hope to collect acorns this year. Uh, I might talk more about that, but I've never processed acorns. And um, just like, I'm not going to do that in like the winter or the spring. I'm going to be focusing on other things. And I think it's fair to uh, think seasonally like that. Hi, you brought up something that uh, I got to know more about. Um, we actually, and this podcast is coming out this Sunday, and by the time our listeners hear this interview, this podcast will already have been out, so it's really a time loop here. It's like Terminator movies. Um, but we're going to talk about that that's a way that hobos, people, you know, kind of roughing it can make money, is if you know your mushrooms, you know, you can sell them, and you can get a, a good uh, price for them sometimes. But I never knew there was a certification. How the hell do you get certified, and what does that mean? Like, do I need to get certified? Like, what are the implications of this? So, um, that's such a good question. Uh, when I, when I lived in Eastern Tennessee, um, there were, uh, people who sold mushrooms at the market, like wild mushrooms and including cultivated mushrooms. And at least in Tennessee, from the conversations that I've had to the best of my knowledge, you don't need any sort of like certification to just like sell mushrooms. Uh, you might to just like sell food in general. Um, I didn't, and I didn't ask any questions like that cause I did not give a shit. Um, but they're like, yeah, you can just like sell mushrooms to like chefs. So you can just sell mushrooms at a farmer's market. It's not weird. Um, but in North Carolina and not all States, but here in North Carolina, um, and they changed this recently. Um, I want to say in 2012, um, you now have to have, a FDA approved uh, certification uh, to sell it. Um, and what that means is that like, okay, so I, I think this, this is kind of cool, but it's kind of bullshit. I want to talk about it. Um, there is one company that does the certification. It's called Mushroom Mountain. It's uh, uh, ran by a guy named Chad Cotter and maybe his wife or his ex-wife. I think that they divorced. There's probably a long story behind it, uh, but Mushroom Mountain still exists. Um, and they do the certification classes and they're all FDA approved and he travels around the country to do these classes. Um, you like, once you take the class, you're like, I think you're cert certified in the states that are currently available, but I think as other states like adopt this sort of certification, um, you can do it. And I think other companies will do it as well, but at least in, here in the Southeast, uh, Mushroom Ra Mountain really runs the gamut. Um, I kind of understand that because in order to have like one certification, certifiable class it needs to have like some consistency so to have like one person doing it um makes a lot of sense but they do they do employ other teachers and from what i understand 
Um, they have different teaching styles, uh, but essentially you you get tested on paper with like different written characteristics about mushrooms and you're uh, given uh, fresh mushrooms. Some mushrooms are definitely fresher than others. Uh, some are dried out, which is like really tricky to look at a dried out like chanterelle, for example, and be like, oh, okay, uh, this looks like a shriveled piece of shit. Like, <laughs> let me look at the decurrent gills, and they're not gills, but who fucking cares? Um, you gotta, like, look at that and be like, okay, that's a chanterelle. And, like, I don't know. If you know your mushrooms, you should know that's a chanterelle. But if um, if you didn't know your mushrooms, I guess you wouldn't pass. Uh, it's worth noting that if you don't pass, it's, I don't know, if you get, like, questions wrong, like, you just don't pass. You don't get your certification and... If you miss on a certain species, you can't sell that certain species. Um, I happen to pass all of them because not to toot my own horn, but I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Um, and uh, shit, where am I going with this? I don't know. Um, the intention is to make sure that people don't sell poison. look like some mushrooms to chefs. Uh, I know talking to some other foragers in the, in the area, things like that have happened before where they don't get seriously sick, um, but they do... Um, I don't know, people eat mushrooms and they get sick. And I think only a certain amount of fatalities happen a year. And um, I feel like the best way to do that is through education. And I'd rather, I don't know, I'd rather not have like a certification from the government to like do that. But also, I don't know if I really want to sell mushrooms in general. I just don't need to commodify, um, uh, monetize like every hobby, every passion I have. Um, I can also just do things for myself, and that's kind of where I've come back to uh, between now and then. Yeah, I'm so glad we're doing this interview. I'm already learning uh, new stuff. Um, so I remember that you were on the Appalachian Trail for a while, and uh, I remember like I had a phone back then, and every now and then you'd send me a text with some bizarre question or some uh, <laughs> like random observation, and then after that, like... We were sitting around a fire, and I'm like, yeah, what the hell were you talking about with that? And you were like, I don't know. I must have been drunk or something. But anyway, like, I would like to hear more about, like, your experience on the Appalachian Trail. Um, why did you – what prompted it? And, you know, for one of the things we talk about often in our podcast is the power of simplifying. And anybody backpacking, you know, living for no matter what period of time with what you carry on your back – is a profoundly reality-shifting experience compared to our, like, consumer culture of accumulation. Mm -hmm. So what do you think you took away from that? What what prompted it, and what what did it teach you? So with my journey to go on to the Appalachian Trail, um, like, not a lot of decisions in my life, but a couple of them, there was a woman involved. Uh, who really wanted to go, um, and, um, you know, I had, I'm, I'm not going to say I never thought about going on the AT, but, like, I just felt like there are a lot of other things in my way, uh, something, um, something I struggle with in my life is just, like, putting other, other people's needs, other things' needs, uh, like work, for example, I often put those needs above mine, and, like, going on the AT, I was like, okay, I can do something that, like, I want to do, and I can prepare for it, um, and so there was a lot of preparation for that, um, I really wish I did more physical preparation, uh, not that I feel like I couldn't do it, but, uh, I do feel like it would have made some things easier, uh, I did a lot of fruit prep, 
Um, I want to go the entire Appalachian Trail uh, without consuming any animal products because I feel like animals should not be exploited. And I was like, I'm going to fucking do that. Like, I, there was, there's not a lot of information on that on the internet, at least at the time that I did it. Um, and so I did a lot of buying of food. Man, don't call me right now. Um, I did a lot of buying of food and all that jazz, which I now know that really wasn't fucking necessary. Um, that was really dumb, but, uh, I don't know. It's nice to have, like, several hundreds of pounds of couscous and dehydrated vegetables, just like when you get back from the AT, of like, oh, I can eat this now and not be tired of it entirely. Um, took me a while to eat oatmeal again. I gotta say, that was, um, that was a long process. Um, and, God, trail mix, too. I ate trail mix for lunch every single day, like a big bowl of trail mix. Um, God. It was so, it was so good though. It was so good and terrible. Anyway, um, why'd I do it? I don't know. Um, I thought I would like, well, really the, the biggest thing I want to get out of it and I did get out of it is to, um, uh, learn more, more about the mushrooms on the way. Um, I found a lot of mushrooms growing, uh, just directly off the trail and just going off into the woods even a little bit. Um, I got to, I really want to interact with other people and teach them about mushrooms. I didn't realize how many fucking people were going to be on the trail all of the time. Um, there are a lot of people, I feel like the AT is overused and something that I realized, and I feel like I kind of knew, but I realized is that, um, just like consumerism, just like, just fucking destroys like every awesome aspect about like our interpretation of nature and, um, like when you talk to backpackers like yeah there is like there is the notion that like you can't just like take every little thing and take it with you and you can't just like have a bunch of bullshit and carry it with you but like there's definitely like a lot of people will just like talk about gear and like what their gear is and how lightweight their gear is and just like i don't know it felt very um insipid and um a lot of people were like, you know, like, you know, once I'm done with the AT, I'm just going to, like, go back to my normal life. And I, I will say there are a lot of people who I would say the AT, like, completely changed their lives. They're like, I don't want to uh, go back into, like, normal society. I want to be kind of a wild person. And I feel like I wish I could give those people more resources because, like, it's really hard. A lot of people go into a depression when they get back from the trail because, like, they... Um, they can't pee wherever they want. I had such a hard time just like not trying to just pee on every single tree. Cause when you're on the trail, you can just kind of pee anywhere. Um, it's like not a big deal. Like sometimes you walk upon people peeing and it's like, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable and it's kind of weird, but like, it's also, we all live outside and like you just pee everywhere. Um, yeah, even like working outside like, where you can pee on a tree, like that's pretty normal with what I do. Um, it was like still pretty difficult to accommodate back to that and um yeah just like not moving all the time i just like i don't know when i get depressed i like don't want to move at all i just like get really stuck in place and so instead of like continuing um that movement i really wanted to do that but it's just when you get back to society there's nothing it's really hard to keep that going um and a lot of things that encourage you to keep that going, uh, you often have to pay money for, which I ran out of money because, like, you, I don't know, I had this idea where just, like, you pay money to take a shower. Like, I wish I bathed more in, in streams and creeks. I, I learned, 
more about that uh, listening to this podcast of just like, oh, you can kind of just like do that. And it's really not a big goddamn deal. But I was, I don't know, I had my head up my ass. And um, I, you know, I, you get so hungry and you buy so much food and you eat all the food because you're just expending so many calories per day. Um, I was definitely, um, I had a lot of calories. I think I was eating like probably 450 to 5,000 calories per day. Um, I was able to keep track of all the nutrients that I was getting. So I had all my macros that were fine and all my micros were fine too. Um, but still you're just like hungry all the time when you're just like your goal is just to keep hiking all the time. I, uh, I wish I, I wish I took more zero days where I didn't do any hiking. I just like hung out and I, I intended to do the 2000, approximately 2,200 miles. I did about 600. Um, there is a, I think of one day in particular where I think I did about eight miles, but like every mushroom I saw with my backpack on, I would bend down to look at it and take a picture and then I would bend back up. And at the end of the day, I was like, why do my knees hurt? And I didn't really <laughs> think about it until, uh, much later. Um, I learned that a lot of people don't know a lot about mushrooms or edible plants, for example. Like, um, I was, um, I found, uh, this, uh, plant in the mint family, um, I think it was a white bergamot. I'm still not entirely sure where it is, but, you know, it had the square stem, opposite leaf, a fragrant smell, and I would, like, put that to my meals, and people would be like, you don't know what species of plant that is, and I'm like, yeah, I don't have to. I know enough about plants to, like, know, to know this is safe. It's a mint plant. Like, I don't know, I don't know what the hell it is, but I know it's a mint plant, and that's fine, and, uh, people were really concerned about, you know, my health, my safety, whenever I do things like that. Um, I turned a lot of people on to ramps, for example. I'd never seen ramps in a while. That was really cool. Um, I wish I knew more about the sustainable harvesting of ramps because I, I wouldn't say I wasn't doing that, but I feel like I just, I didn't have that mindset. Um, I learned a lot about, uh, wood nettle, which is different from stinging nettle. Um, but there's a ton of wood nettle in the mountains and that was a really, um, beneficial friend to run into on a pretty periodic basis, um. I hiked from uh, Georgia to from Springer Mountain to uh, southwestern Virginia. Uh, I did 50 miles in the Shenandoahs, and I also did 40 miles on a canoe on the Shenandoah River. Um, to the listeners who haven't been on the Shenandoah River, there are islands within this river, and they are covered with pawpaw trees. And pawpaws are one of my favorite fruits of uh, late summer, early fall. Uh, just entire islands covered in pawpaw. I'd like to go back and just like eat pawpaws for days and nothing else and see just like, I don't know what happens if I do that. Um, that, I mean, I really enjoyed learning about all the plants all the way. I enjoyed talking to people, even though they didn't really understand like a lot of my points of view. Um, I do, I don't know. I learned, I really like talking to people and, um, interacting with them. Um, and um, but there's definitely, there's way too many people. If you want to hike, do long distance hiking, there's so many other trails out there. So, uh, some are definitely less developed than others, uh, but there's definitely an adventure uh, waiting for you for those who want to find it. All right, here's the first one that was, uh, I have to edit so badly that uh, <laughs> I just had to get rid of what we had because in passing it back and forth and drinking this beer, it just like, it got to it erase something. So, uh, Teresa, how do you think the interview is going so far? What are you thinking about what, what Tabessens is talking about? Oh, well, I'm really enjoying learning more about Tabessens in particular and then just thinking about our life 
And uh, I really like how he was talking about his favorite mushrooms, which a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them we have videos on our YouTube channel now. And uh, let's see, I also um, was in awe of his experience on the Appalachian Trail. I've only done very small sections of the AT, and uh, I can appreciate the food preparation for someone who is trying to be vegan. That's got to be pretty difficult. <laughs> and and yet I again like with our, you know, trying to escape society and learning about wild edibles whether they're mushrooms, plants, um it is really interesting when you get into conversations with people and they're they're like I don't know. It's like, well, you better find out cuz I feel like this information is going to be super important in the future, if not already. Um, and I had to smile at, <laughs> at Tabesson's realization of, of the showers and listening to our podcast. Cause, uh, cause now we're freezing our asses off in the <laughs> icy cold winter waters of the creeks. Yeah. My balls are cryogenically frozen for future <laughs> generations. <laughs> yeah. And a couple of those uh, mushrooms he mentioned that, uh, Teresa says we have videos on, in particular, our bluets, um, the ringless honey mushrooms, and chicken of the woods. We have videos on all three of those, I am proud to say. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of things stood out to me while we were uh, I was interviewing Tobessens is when he was talking about peeing outside. Like, that is a powerful thing. I don't. Is it the same for a girl? Uh, I imagine it's not, but for a guy, like, that is a mark of freedom, is can you just whip it out and pee where you want to? Like, I, I wouldn't want to be stuck in a city all the time where there's no place I can just pee outside. There, there's something rewilding, like deeper than it seems about peeing outside. Well, you know, bathrooming is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. I know. That's why I asked you. I'll try to keep it short. Don't talk about poop. It's just pee, about pee. As a woman, I never understood why other women would wear skirts or dresses, especially in the past. It just seemed like it would get in the way. But I got to tell you, I'm a convert to at least wearing some sort of skirt um, so that if I need to pee, I can just like squat down. And yes, it is freeing. And I do enjoy the breeze on my nethers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I enjoy the breeze on my nethers, too. <laughs> it depends on the breeze, though, I got to say. And ramps. Awesome. I have yet to find. I wouldn't I'm not sure I would know ramps if I saw them, but I've heard so much about ramps like it's a, a really primary um, like bulk food, a bulk foraging green in the mountains. And uh, yeah, we're spending so much time in the mountains. I'm, uh, I hope I run into that soon and get to know it better. But right on. Um and he was talking about like those islands with all the pawpaws and wonder what would happen if he just ate pawpaws. Well, I have a prediction on that. You will shit yourself silly. <laughs> you will get the shits if you eat nothing but pawpaw. But uh, feel free to experiment with that and please share your shit stories. We love shit stories. So, well, I was just going to say one other thing about the rewilding aspect of being on the trail as well as um, trying to trying again, like what we're doing, living more outside and just, yeah, like I can, I, I can't imagine going back to living in a lifestyle where I can't pee outside or, or as I often joke, you know, pooping in the front yard of, uh, like the side yard where we, we stay. And then the people's yard, like the front yard that's populated with trees. It's like, that's our bathroom. 
I think yeah. that would be really weird to just poop in any person's front yard. And that would make me depressed because I, I enjoy that. And I pee on so much stuff and claim it like a dog does. <laughs> I, I own so much real estate around here, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, so um, like Gumby said, this is where the interview got kind of cut off. So Gumby, you asked Tabessens... What inspired you to work on your connection to nature? And Tabessens replied... So, um, I mean, that's that's a question with a lot of history, I would say. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to um, have parents who understood that spending time outside. Uh, my, my parents were both really into gardening. Uh, my mother was an artist. Uh, my dad's also an artist, but that wasn't like his full-time gig. Um, well, anyways, I don't know. When you're an editor, it's uh, sometimes art and sometimes just like knowing what grammar is. Um, but they really wanted me and uh, my, my sibling to spend a ton of time outside. They they built the swing set, and the swing set was pretty awesome, but I spent a lot of time uh, in this dogwood tree in our backyard. Um, I, I think it was there when they first moved into the house uh, when uh, we were born, um, my twin my twin sister and I, um, and uh, we climbed that dogwood tree so much. I honestly, I feel like we climbed up too much. Uh, towards the end of his life, you can see some of the branches that we climbed on. You could kind of tell uh, the wear and tear of just like, I think our weight being on there. Um, so that was pretty heartbreaking to kind of come to that realization. But I mean, with that being said, um, we spent a lot of time in that tree. We like stoked our imaginations in that tree and we were able to, um, I, I didn't really have a lot of friends growing up. Um, I have always had trouble with like social situations and, uh, to save a long story short, my friends were really my sister's friends. And I think they thought of me as their friend too. Um, but it took me a couple of years to kind of realize that. And I'll talk about that later. Um, but we spent a lot of time back there. And as I got older, I wanted to spend more time outside. Um, it really sucks when you're in middle school and like they, they take recess from you. And, um, I always thought at the time, it's like, you know, I'm older. I can't just be outside all the time. So I'm going to try to do this. And then I learned that school is a real crock of shit. And I'm just not really uh, a fan of that. Um, I like to say when I was older, I would have uh, done some more activities, like maybe sports. Uh, but I, I don't know, that's interacting with a lot of people. I wasn't really into that at the time and at least not in that sort of like competitive physical way. Um, I was in Boy Scouts and, um, uh, I have a lot of very strong opinions about Boy Scouts. Um, I will say the ways I benefit from it is that I, I learned how to enjoy hiking. I did not do any hiking beforehand and, um, my my family, I, I don't know if they just didn't have the capacity or if they, um, I don't know, if they just didn't know where to begin, how to encourage that love for hiking. But Boy Scouts, they knew how to do that, and that's something I got out of it. Um, otherwise, I felt like the best way to fit in was to kind of act like a, um, you know, a kind of sexist, racist middle schooler, high schooler, and uh, which made me feel uncomfortable at the best and like immoral at the worst. Um, I was teased a lot during that time period of my life. Um, it was detrimental to my mental health. Um, I also, I mean, I also had a lot going on at home, uh, with my mom being sick, like pretty much all the time. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time inside to spend more time with her, uh, cause she was bed bound, uh, from time to time when she wasn't making art. 
Um, but as I got older, um, I took some science classes and some of those got me outside and that was really cool. Um, and while I was in college, I studied environmental sciences and I, I went to school in the mountains and just like, what a gift that I, I wish I, I, I did more hiking when I was in college. Cause I really could have done that. Um, but I, I was, I don't know, I was afraid to explore. I was afraid to trespass. Um, I didn't have a car, so I couldn't like go to a lot of different trails unless I was like, uh, going with friends. And as you might imagine, friends are kind of tricky when you're, uh, an asocial, uh, person. Um, so, uh, but I always thought about, uh, when, uh, I first met Gumby at, uh, focusing solely on nature connection, um, at the programming that we did together. Um, I didn't really, I mean, I did Boy Scouts, but like Boy Scouts is not the same as like nature connection. They don't really, they teach you how to view nature as a resource and not as like something that you're a part of. Um, and, um, uh, when I focus more on nature connection, I realize more that like you can be a part of nature. Um, you still, I mean, in a way you still use nature as a resource, but like you're also like more in tune to how, uh, time and the seasons and how the other things they can affect you um and living society you're like kind of separated from all of that and i think that's i think it's really sad um so when i focus more on nature connection i got out of college um you know i still i still try to have a normal job and like wow what a fucking mistake what the hell was i thinking um i thought that was just what i was supposed to do and then eventually i realized wow i i really want to focus on nature connection. And so, um, uh, I, I moved out to Tennessee during college, which like, I, I definitely, I think I learned a lot from that experience. Um, but I was really glad to move back to North Carolina, uh, to somewhere I'm familiar, uh, with some folks I'm familiar with and to, uh, focus more on nature connection because I mean, a lot of people here, they do want to connect back to nature. There is that sort of mindset, um, here, uh, in this part of the United States. Um, but I still, I mean, recently I just been trying to not monetize my connection to nature. I want to be able to do more things on my own. Um, I work well with kids and like having my own personal connection, connection to nature when I'm working with kids, it's hard to do that both at the same time. Cause you have to like facilitate what they're doing. Cause a lot of things are super new to them. And sometimes that's exciting. That's scary. That's like overwhelming. And like, you have to be the experienced mentor to kind of coach them through that. And now I'm at the point in my life where I feel like I need to do a lot of things on my own. Um, I need to find other people more experienced than I am to help me mentor things that I think are exciting, that I think are scary, that I think are overwhelming and to, um, just find what's, what's the real thing. What, what does it feel like to be, um, connected to nature? So that's kind of, um, where I'm at with that. Do you have any questions about, um, that journey? Intermission. <laughs> Alas, we may never know what some of my questions are. Uh, for Tibetans at that point, because I don't remember the dragon's milk was really starting to take effect. <laughs> I saw you scratching down some notes as we were listening to this. Uh, Teresa, you got any thoughts about what we just heard you want to share? Well, real quick, I really appreciated the um, the sacrifice that the dogwood tree from Tibetans childhood made because I, I, even though I do respect trees, I feel like, wow, if if a child basically, like, damaged a limb on a tree, but that was it. 
and their connection with nature was fostered and grew and grew after that. What a beautiful sacrifice that tree made, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and with that, I've I've been reading Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre. And Tibesson is talking about like recess being taken away because, I mean, we got to make sure that the kids are prepared for this technological world and, you know, make sure that they have enough time behind a computer screen or whatever the hell they do nowadays. Um, I just feel like, wow, how sad is that? Yeah, my, my favorite tree that I would climb and really developed uh, the, the first relationship I can remember having with a tree um, I didn't know what it was at the time. Looking back, I realized it was a southern magnolia mm. that I just spend so many, uh, it seemed like hours, but you know how time passes differently as a kid and climb up there and it just, you know, I would fantasize about being a squirrel or a monkey living <laughs> up there. Do you have uh, any one tree species that jumped out at you, whether you climbed it or just you had a relationship when you were a kid? I know you said you were uh, kind of sheltered inside, which Tobesson said he was sort of, you know, more inside than he wanted to be as a kid as well. I still... Um, don't really feel comfortable climbing trees. I uh, I can't say that I had a huge or even a remotely <laughs> close relationship with any type of tree. I just remember like there were crab apples in the front yard of where I used to live when I was about six years old. And uh, my mom said that they weren't for eating. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the tone that my connection with nature took. Those are looking apples. <laughs> and it's like everything was just like, don't do that. That's dangerous. Don't do that. That's dirty. Don't do that. You'll get hurt or you'll get killed. It's like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just um, stay in my room. And I hate that. I mean, I wish I had developed more of a nature connection, but I'm glad that I'm doing it now. And now you're wiping your butt with leaves. Exactly. And just the other thing, which, you know, real quick, again, um, how he mentioned that he was a a sexist, racist middle schooler. And I think that was just fairly normal. And I don't know if we need to label um, middle school boys as being sexist and racist. I think they're on a learning curve. So as long as they don't continue to be so-called sexist and so-called racist where they're hurting people. Um, I feel like, you know, we can temper that with, with learning and not just call people labels and like that be the rest of their life. Like, Oh, well, I guess I'm just a racist. Yeah. A lot of fertile ground for uh, exploration there. Yeah. Which, uh, we've already talked a little bit about, but, uh, got a couple episodes in mind where we hope to dive into that kind of stuff more. True that. But this is the home stretch in front of us, and uh, yeah, the beer was definitely starting to take effect at this point. <laughs> and this might be our last intermission that we have to interrupt the interview, uh, unless I have missed something and have to go back and fix it. God help us all. Um, but bonus points, if anybody, if you listen really closely, okay. can tell the spot in this next length of interview where I have to urgently run off and piss in the bushes and try to do it really subtle so it doesn't get picked up, but it kind of does. But anyway, moving on. Uh, When Tobesson's kind of, you know, talks about like when he met me and I I got to introduce him to stuff, like I've kind of gotten out of outdoor education and and am kind of doing the hobo thing. And now Tobesson's has taken the mantle and he's like, He's the the lead teacher and the outdoor educator, and I'm really uh, happy to hear you asking the questions and uh, thinking about the things you think about, um, which is kind of a good segue to another topic I wanted to, to explore here. Um, one of the things I've struggled with is, like, captive animals. Um, I've always felt like when you get into outdoor education and there's animals around, people will often bring in an animal to teach about that animal. Say, you got an owl, you got a turtle— 
you bring it out of a box, whether it's a cage with glass walls or whether it's an actual box, and you talk about that animal. And um, I'll never remember this. I'll never forget this birthday party that they were paying me to to bring the kids out and talk about all the animals around. And I brought out a box turtle and I asked people, you know, does anybody know what this is? And finally, a kid says Eastern box turtle. I was like, nope. And, uh, you know, then they were really confused because they knew it was an Eastern box turtle by the books. And I said, when you take an animal and separate it from its environment, the things it eats, the things that eat it, it is no longer that creature. Nothing exists in isolation. And it was kind of a downer. They never asked me to do birthday parties again, which was a financial <laughs> loss for me. But uh, I wanted to get your input on that. Like, how do you feel? Like, I feel like the wrong message as soon as you bring an animal in a cage, no matter what happens after that, the kid's getting to touch it, what you say about it. It's sort of like if you want to talk about another race of people, like I want to educate white people about black history. Bring in the black person in the chains. Oh it's like right off the bat, the wrong foot. Where do you go from there? So I feel the same way about the animals. You bring out an animal from a cage, it's like you are already have objectified it. And I don't like, you know, like... I talked to DeBessence a little bit for the interview, like, you know, it's not about, like, us agreeing about things. I want to get your point of view, like, what would you respond to somebody that brought up that concern? Like, even in your program, a kid that brought it up. Mm -hmm. um, I will say, in the, um, in the, in the last uh, couple of five years, I've become uh, really, um, uh, I don't know if educate is the right word, but, like, I've been, I've been reading, and I've been... Uh, you know what? Educated is the right fucking word. Because I've been reading, I've been uh, just like talking to a lot of other people um, about animals, about animal rights, about animal exploitation. And I, um, I really, it makes me feel uncomfortable that pe humans feel like they can take animals and uh, hold them in captive. Um, I, I, I kind of understand why people do it for like conservation but like i still like i struggle with like is that the right or correct way uh to do it um humans uh have done a lot of fucked up things to animals and like where animals live um but uh yeah especially with um, the programming that i've done um i've i've had to like take animals that are captive and like teach kids about it and just like it's not the same as like finding an animal in the wild and like i would much prefer to do that and uh because because of like i get to make a lot of decisions on like how i want to do my own programming and to an extent the programming of other people and um sometimes directly and indirectly i have shifted away from like using those animals in the programming that um i'm a part of the programming that i control for like a better word um, there are definitely still, I still have peers that still do that. Um, uh, but I definitely, um, I, I don't really care for it. And I wish, I don't know. And whenever things like that come up, it's like, uh, like say there's an owl and the owl has been hit by a car and like humans drive cars. I drive cars. Gumby drives a car. Uh, we all drive cars. Um, and like it gets hit by a car because like humans keep throwing out trash, which attracts rodents and attracts other things. And all those things are going to attract owls. For example, um, if an owl gets hit by a car, do we have an obligation to take care of it? Especially if like if we hit it with our car? Um, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, it's like, do we like keep that away from the other owls where it like can act like an actual owl? Or like, do we 
let the owl like die as an owl like that's still where i don't really know where i'm on in terms of like how i interpret other animals um and i mean the more i read about animal rights and animal exploitation the more i feel like we should not keep animals in cages um i think real freedom uh involves not only all humans but all species as well so um yeah i, I hope that answers your question yeah not only did it answer my question i think you brought up like kind of the heart of the question of like yeah, I like the way you worded it. Um, I'm going to butcher it, but kind of like, do we let the owl die like an owl? Um, that's one of the, the concerns I had with captive animals is uh, the implication is that we know best, that the animal, if it wasn't in a cage, would go out and die out of ignorance. So we must be smarter. And I just saw the study about, you know, crows are as intelligent as humans, you know, news flashed. I'm like, who the hell says humans are intelligent? You know, it's just <laughs> like, uh, but anyway, yeah, that, that whole topic. Um, but I appreciate your answer on that. That was good. And, um, um, let's see, that's a good segue to another question I wanted to ask. You know, I'm not an outdoor educator anymore. Every now and then I get to teach kids and, um, you like actively teach kids very, uh, like regularly. Oh, yeah. So you're still in the Even business. Right now, like, yeah. During like addressing COVID-19. Like, yeah. This is still what I do. So a big thing I think about that I remember thinking about more so when I was doing it you know, all the time is what is our responsibility to these kids? You know, like we hear a lot about listening to the scientists and they're making a lot of dire predictions about their future and they're linking it directly to the way we live, the cars we drive, the light switches we flip. So every bit of evidence is that we are in fact robbing these kids of these their future. These kids that we're teaching right now are either going to be dead prematurely or have a future that's possibly hellacious in ways we can't imagine. So, you know, I used to struggle with that a lot. Like, what is my responsibility to these kids? Do I need to try to radicalize them, to turn them all into anarchists? Should I be teaching them how to make Molotov cocktails and fight the, the, the government that's, you know, we know, we know is destroying their future? Should I be role modeling? Like, that's part of why I'm trying to be a hobo right now and, and, you know, how far do we go? Like, should we be role modeling, completely rejecting society? So I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, what is our responsibility to these kids when all the evidence is that the way we live is the biggest threat to their fu- their future? And uh, what do we do about that as educators? First of all, I was not prepped for this question. Second of all, <laughs> this question is fucking awesome. Um some feedback that I've gotten from my peers is that I am really good uh, about teaching them about autonomy, about how to make their own choices that make sense for them. And I was so thrilled to hear that. Like, I just never really thought about, like, that I do that. I, I just, I haven't really thought about how I do that at all. I, I, I haven't really thought about doing that intentionally, but, like, a lot of my... Um, beliefs which you could describe as anarchism is that people need to be able to make their own choices that make sense now choices can make sense when you're also living with a group of people they can make sense when you are acting as an individual uh but you need to make those choices that you feel like are morally correct and benefit you as well um i i question whether or not altruism exists 
like do people really do things like for like others or do we all benefit from helping each other and i subscribe to the belief that we do things that not only benefit each other but also benefit ourselves uh humans are social creatures um i I suspect you're going to ask me about Daniel Quinn and kind of about like how all that's going to go. Um, but yeah, humans, like they need to work with each other in order to survive. Um, and I tell children that they need to like work with each other in addition to, uh, thinking for themselves. Um, and, um, I feel like that isn't adequately taught in schools, at least from, um, talking to kids. I know that I had some teachers who were actually, you could probably describe them as radical or at least they, I don't know, they taught about like how you can make your own choices and just like how you can like do things that are like against the rules, but like the rules are bullshit. So like who the fuck cares? Like, for example, I had this teacher in elementary school. We got to draw on our desks all of the time. And in no school have I ever talked to any other person, any of my peers that allowed you to draw on your desk. Like I'm talking about extensive art. That was beautiful on our desk. And it was like, as long as you could erase it by the end of the day, it's perfectly okay. Like, there are people who clean these desks and they want them uh, to be clean because that is something that we cannot control. They have to do it because they have to do it because uh, they've been told they have to do it. So uh, be a good friend. Uh, if you draw on your desk, just clear it off by the end of the day. And, yeah, all the kids understood that was okay. And like, we would draw on our desk while we were listening. I mean, this is when, this is when like, we were like kind of understanding, uh, different communication disorders, like autism spectrum disorder comes to mind, uh, uh, attention deficit disorder comes to mind. Um, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, we were like actually understanding like what it means to be an individual, um, uh, with those, uh, conditions. And like, that's an entirely different conversation that I don't want to get into right now. Um, but, uh, just like teaching, like a lot, I would say that myself and all of those peers like had those struggles. Uh, you could describe us as having a communication disorder. And like this teacher knew that you can be different from other people and still benefit others at the same time. And I felt like that was really important. And I try to teach that in my own programming as well, because I work with, I mean, I work with homeschoolers. A lot of homeschoolers are just like, they don't function like other kids that I meet in schools. Um, they're very different. They have very different needs. And some of them, um, they're also homeschooled because they want to be, their parents want them to be taught like a certain way of thinking. And um, I am blessed when I can interact with all these kids all at the same time because they have such different perspective of how different things work. And it's so cool to hear them talk to each other because I also teach them like, how do you talk to someone who doesn't have the same belief as you or has a different idea as you, or they disagree with you on something. Um, I feel like that's a really important skill. Um, I feel like I still am working on that skill because, you know, I'm human. I'm prone to error. Um, shit, where am I going with this? I don't know. Um, I feel like kids should be taught that, um, that the world, uh, has a lot of issues and that they are coming to an age uh, where they'll be, uh, responsible to mitigate those issues, or they can make choices that, uh, increases these issues even more. Um, they have the choice and they can make that and they can make the correct choice that they feel the most comfortable with. And more often than not, that it is 
the choice that is able to respect themselves, is able to respect other people, and is able to respect nature. Um, and that makes me feel really great. Um, and, you know, even when we run into animals that are captive, uh, I have a chance to, you know, talk about, like, what do you think that animal is feeling right now? And it's like, well, it's kind of hard to tell. It's not really moving around a lot. And it's like, do you feel like it'd probably be happier if it wasn't, like, held captive anymore? And it's like, yeah, it probably would. Um, I'm like, well, that's something I want you to think about. Um, and, um, you know, it's just like, I'm not telling them what to think. I'm not telling them how to feel. I am asking them questions, and I'm asking them to think about the things they are thinking about and feeling. Um, yeah, Daniel Quinn played a huge role of that. I feel like once I started reading Daniel Quinn, that changed a lot of how I start to teach. Wow. Um, God, I had so much to say to that. I really like that you're asking kids that are looking in cages, because I'd do the same thing. We'd, uh, you know, I couldn't help it. We'd pass, like, a cage with an owl in it, and I'd try not to use it in my programs, but you're not going to stop little kids, their curiosity, from, like, woo, there's an owl. And I'd always make sure to ask them, how do you think the owl feels? And the kids always knew, and, and you know, without exception. I mean, the owl didn't look happy. How would you feel in there? So I'm really glad that you're asking that question. I think the empathy, the empathy for the creatures around us is the thing most lacking, not the knowledge. We can all learn the Latin names of every damn thing in our yard. And if we don't have empathy for it, if we can't put ourselves in its place, I don't see the world getting any better through that route. Um, I really like how you said you're teaching kids about working together, mm -hmm. you know, because I tell people all the time, I think that's one of my biggest weaknesses. I'm not only antisocial, but I've got social anxiety. It's really hard to work with other people. And I just kind of enjoy being an asshole, which kind of exacerbates the whole thing. But I, I definitely agree with you. Like, we are gregarious animals. We are meant to be in tribes. There's strength in numbers. Um, and, gosh, there was something else. You, maybe I'll come back to it. Something else you said there that really, like, got me thinking. But... You were right that my next question was about Daniel Quinn, because I remember you being so inspired when you read Ishmael. And um, I'd like to see, like, to check in with you, like, how those thoughts sit with you now. You know, Ishmael kind of tackles stuff like, um, you know, po overpopulation and uh, taker culture. And what you feel about those things now, because I remember you said you were, like, actually reading parts of Ishmael to the kids you were working with, which I thought was awesome. So, um, to, to correct you a little bit, I was actually reading my Ishmael oh, yeah. where, um, where Ishmael is talking to Julie and I feel like I was reading that to 12 year olds and I was like, you know what parts of this book, I like, don't know if 12 year olds are like kind of ready to hear, mm -hmm. but like the fucking protagonist is 12 years old. And like, you know what, this is how like 12 year olds talk to each other and I don't give a shit. I'm going to read this book and if people don't like it. I can at least talk to them about how they feel about it, and, like, maybe I'll change my mind, but, like, every time I read a chapter from that book, I got about, I don't know, maybe a third of the way through it. I just, I just ran out of time in my programming, um, and I had to, I had to kind of change, uh, which, uh, age group I worked with, so, um, I mean, at the time, I was working with teenagers, and, um, it's like, God, every single time I would finish a chapter, I'd be like, okay, we're going we're gonna to feed the story. We're going to talk about how we feel. How do we feel about this? And I would just get, like, silence, always silence, because they're like, and I was like, do y'all, like, are y'all, like, thinking about this? And they're like, 
we actually, I, and someone spoke and was like, I'm actually thinking a lot about this. Um, I'm sorry I haven't said anything, but like, I am thinking so much about the things you have said that I like, don't know what to say. I was like, cool. I just, I really appreciate you saying that because like, I just, I can't always tell that kind of thing. Like if you're not talking, I don't know if you're like not listening or if you're listening and not saying anything. Um, so that was really useful. Um, yeah, I mean, gosh, teaching, teaching kids how to communicate, I feel like is one of the most important skills that you can teach literally anyone, which goddamn fucking think about my childhood, which I kind of referenced, of <laughs> uh, just like, how do you teach people to communicate? Like what the fuck? Um, anyway, I guess I do. Okay. I guess, um, what was I saying? Anyway. Um, so something that Daniel Quinn talks about, I mean, he talks about like, overpopulation i mean he talks about population and usually in reference to overpopulation um but a lot of what i got out of that is just like thinking about that kind of in economic terms um for example if you have we'll say you have a business um you could really do anything people i feel like there are some people who they choose to grow that business that nonprofit, that group to just be in the local area but people people always want to expand their shit they were like we got to do our shit but somewhere else we got to expand it to somewhere else and i really don't like that Mm -hmm. that really agitates me um i say that with with the understanding that like with i with the things i do with nature connection i feel like that's really important um i feel like people could benefit if we do that elsewhere, but it doesn't have to be like my name, the brand I'm associating with. That doesn't have to be us. Other people can do that. And like, if you really want to do it, then you need to go out there and you need to be like a part of that area. You need to acclimate to the people that you're like trying to reach. Um, it just really pisses me off when we're just like, we're trying to grow and grow and grow. And we're not thinking about like the consequences of just like making like, I know you and I have talked about um, throughout the years of just like when you have like a group of kids, when you add more kids to it, your quality of education does not improve. It goes down and it really fucking grinds my gears whenever I'm in situations where I have to add uh, more kids to my group. And don't get me wrong. I want to educate as many people as I can because I feel like that's important. Um, That almost goes without saying. Um, But I just want to do it the right way. And I'll be damned if it doesn't grind my gears when I have to make decisions that I do not want to make, that I would rather not consent to. Um, Conversely, um, to address what's currently going on, uh, September of 2020 with COVID-19, our program sizes have to reduce by a lot, um, which financially really sucks. It really does suck financially. Um, But I feel like we're getting a lot of really meaningful connection. And we're getting a lot of, um, a lot of people have been stuck at home inside for like months on end and they're ready to do like literally anything, pretty much anything that you'd want to do. Um, for example, I was doing basket making, which I tried to do basket making over the summer and it just, it was not working. Cause like, I, I, I really don't know why. I think a lot of kids I work with in the summer, uh, had been, um, interacting with other people and I don't know. But once I get to homeschool, for example, uh, kids are really into just like the things you want to teach them. And they hadn't really, uh, most of the homeschoolers I talked to, they hadn't really interacted with other people for like this entire year, which I think that's a really big deal. 
um, as we've mentioned, humans are gregarious animals and they really need other people to interact with. And so I think for this year, it's a, you know, a lot of people will ask me, you know, what I do, is it, you know, do you like your job? Is it worth doing? And I'm like, you know, I mean, I mean, a lot of people say a lot about jobs, you know, it's, it's very difficult, but very rewarding. Like this is actually really fucking difficult to do programming in person during pandemic, but I'll be damned if it's not some of the most rewarding work I've ever done in my entire life. Um, and how's that really to Daniel Quinn? Um, I don't really know. Cause I kind of got sidetracked. Um, do you have any questions about anything I've said or, um, do you want to rephrase your question? No, I think you actually like kind of nailed the answer. Cause like everything you said, even though it seemed like, you know, being sidetracked was to me sort of how Quinn is, uh, you know, influencing your thoughts. Not that, you know, for me, like, I feel like people who read Daniel Quinn were already thinking something and then they saw something in the way he formulated it. Like, damn, he like organized the thoughts I was already having. And that's why I like Daniel Quinn. Mm -hmm. So I imagine it's, it's kind of like that for you. And, um, I remember that thought I was like forgetting earlier when you were talking about like people all thinking the same, you know, kids learning how to communicate. I used to have kids, uh, show up for camps, um, the summer before last, before the pandemic, I was doing summer camps and uh, kids would start talking about presidents. I'd never heard kids talk about politics so much. Obviously borrowed from their parents. So I started coming up with this rule. If you can tell me why I should vote for the other guy, then I will not ask you to not talk about politics. Because if you don't have a single reason why I should vote for the other guy, you haven't even paused long enough to understand what you think you're pitting yourself against. It's just, it's the same bullshit we all get into. Um but yeah, I really appreciated you uh, saying that. And yeah, the baskets, man, baskets are hard. <laughs> I've had some luck with them, but uh, yeah, I empathize, especially teaching them. My God, every now and then you get one kid that takes off with it. But like trying to teach a group, whew, that's a challenge. Um, and wow, there's so much to talk about with this topic. So I don't want to cut you off. If you think about anything else related to this topic, Go with that, but I also want to ask you about your experience dumpster diving. Oh, yes. Um, we, I tried to do this meetup that I called, shit, I, I don't remember which meetup that, uh, I think it was Wetico. Wetico, a cannibal support group is what yeah. I called it. And uh, Tabesson signed up for that. And for this dumpster diving walk, we were just going to like meet at one place in downtown Durham, take like an hour, maybe a two hour long walk around like, I don't know, maybe three blocks worth of downtown Durham and see what we dumpster dived. And it was incredible. And uh, you took to it so much like a duck to water. I assumed you'd been dumpster diving before, but you let me know after that, like, no, actually, that was the beginning. So I would love to hear any tips, stories, any observations you have to share as far as scavenging and dumpster diving. I am definitely so thankful for that experience of just like, I kind of, like, I, like, understood that, like, you know, people threw things away. But once I, like, started visiting dumpsters on, like, a pretty routine basis, like, God, there's, like, so much shit that people throw away. Uh, I think it's really interesting. Um, sometimes I meet other dumpster divers, and um, I... Uh, it, and it's very interesting, because, like, everyone I meet who's also dumpster diving, at first they're like, 
oh, who are you? Are you a threat? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I am your friend. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm like looking through there. And uh, because like I don't eat animals or products that come from animals, I will uh, be like, hey, do you want like this chicken or like these eggs? And I'm like, you're not going to eat that? I'm like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to eat any of that. And it's just like, really? Like, you really don't? It's like, yeah. Like, since I've been dumpster diving, I can, like, actually eat the things that I want to eat. And if I don't want to eat it, I don't have to eat anything. You can't tell me what to do. What are you, the government? And so, um, yeah, and that's been really cool. And sometimes it's nice to have another person there. Uh, with COVID-19 going on, I mean, first of all, with COVID-19 going on, I feel like you're just as likely to get COVID-19 going to a store with other people that are there um, than you are to like get food when you're usually by yourself. I haven't ran into any other people dumpster diving since COVID-19, but like you, I mean, I feel like it's like the same. If not, you're less likely to get it dumpster diving than COVID, uh, than going into a grocery store. I'm not a scientist. I don't have anything to back me up. Uh, but that is my, you could call it a hypothesis. Um, yeah. So I was really grateful for just like, I don't know. I guess I was just afraid to like go up to a dumpster and just like look in there and just like the fear of other people watching me. Um, something that I think you told me directly, if you haven't brought it up in the podcast is that you just need to not give a shit about other people seeing you. And that just like opened worlds of just like feeling comfortable to just like go dumpster diving. Um, I usually go dumpster diving, uh, at grocery stores, um, I get a lot of bananas. Um, I love bananas. Bananas are awesome. Uh, it's one of my favorite things. I also, something I'll get periodically, is just like avocados. Not just like one avocado, but like just boxes of avocados. And because, I mean, for one reason or another, all my friends also really like avocados. Like if, um, um, like avocados and beer, those are like things I'll start people on. They're also happy to be my favorite things to find dumpster diving. I'll be like, hey, do you want an avocado? Or, or I'll be like, do you want something from a dumpster? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. It's like, well, do you want 10 avocados? And they're like, <laughs> you have 10 avocados? I was like, no, I don't have 10 avocados. I have like 60 avocados <laughs> and I'm giving you 10. Do you want more? Because I'll give you more. And they're like, oh, I don't even know what to do with 10. I'm like, there's so many things you could do with 10 avocados. <laughs> um, and yeah, for a while, um, especially during the beginning of the year, um, I didn't really go dumpster diving at all because I was like, I don't know what the fuck is going on with COVID-19. I'm just going to stay in place. And I happened to have like boxes upon boxes. I had maybe like six cases of dumpster beer that I had. And it's just like, you know, sitting in my house. And I really wanted to during the summer to have like a big party and just like introduce people to dumpster beer if they haven't had dumpster beer already. And just like, you know, light a fire and just, you know, do a possum shit, just like, be crazy um that's what i'm into um you know this summer that wasn't really feasible to do and so uh but it was really nice to you know come home from a long day and just like drink a dumpster beer be like i found this beer in the wild of north carolina (laughs) in a dumpster what a life to live and um that was really cool um if i had to be honest one of my favorite things that I found dumpster diving, and hold on, let me backtrack with, with that for the younger people that I work with, whether they're like the kids I work with, or like I also work with just younger leaders that are, they're younger than me, I mean, I'm close to 30, but I work with people in their early 20s or like teenagers, stuff like that, um, 
especially in a, uh, for like counselors and training, I'll have like a morning meeting. And, um, when I went dumpster diving more often, I'd be like, I'm really grateful for like the avocados I found dumpster diving. I would like give them avocado. Like I've never had anything from a dumpster before. Is this okay? I'm like, it, I'm not going to make you eat it. I eat this all the time. Just, I prob you can do what you want. I really, you don't even have to take this. I will freeze it. I will use it in something. I will eat it in front of you. You don't have to have it, but you're my friend. You're the homie. You can have this. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd get a lot of questions from then dumpster diving. And I was like, wow, I'm like the dumpster diving guru. Like what the fuck happened? Um, but they always ask me, what's my favorite thing? Dumpster diving. And I always struggle to come up with this answer because I don't want them to tell them the real thing. <laughs> I, a couple of years ago, I found about a half an ounce of cannabis sativa no shit. in a dumpster. Yeah. In a dumpster. I think it was from like a fraternity place or something. Wow. And I was like, yes i was so happy i was so thrilled because like i um wow how much do i want to go into here um (laughs) there was a time in my life where i felt like selling drugs made sense to get by um and but like the whole time it always made me like super anxious like i don't really like I, like, don't really like doing illegal things. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I know I'm an anarchist. So I should be kind of, like, reeling into that. But, like, I'm still, I don't know. I just don't like, I don't like to break the law. Uh, but, like, when you're dumpster diving, it's just, like, it's kind of just, like, legal grayer there. And I'm like, yes, everything is acceptable. And so when I found this site, you know, I want to sniff it and make sure it didn't smell like petroleum or something. Because I, I, after that, um, uh, someone who I care a lot about, um, was asking me is like well how do you know if it's laced with anything like is that is that like a real thing and i'm like i have never really heard of people lacing things with like lacing marijuana with anything like i i i is that even real i was like i don't even fucking know i was like shit i don't even know what i'm talking about and so i i went to this whole um uh Arrowhead is a really great uh non-profit it has a site arrowhead.org i think um or dot com um they have a lot of information on just like psycho- psychoactive substances and like how they affect the body and the law and just like the kind of culture around it. I highly recommend it if that's not what you're into already, dear listeners. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I was going into like this whole thing of like, how do I know? <laughs> how do I know if this is laced or not? And like basically, if it doesn't look weird, it doesn't smell weird, it's fine. And I will tell you that it was fine. And <laughs> I'm a big, I'm a big fan of. Um, I don't really like smoking much anymore. I like edibles. Edibles are like kind of where, where I'm at with that kind of thing. Um, I really, I was able to get some coconut oil and just like, um, I don't know. I can, I can teach you how to make edibles if you really want on this podcast, but I, I don't know. It's not really necessary. There's information on the internet. Um, but yeah, that lasted me for like, God, like half a year or a year or so. Um, and that was really special to like find that from a dumpster and like it, it did push my own edges of like what is acceptable to find a dumpster and um but as someone as someone who um i I use cannabis as a medicine um i'm not saying that everything recreational should be a medicine but like i think there there's a line that people are i don't know i feel like okay good luck um i feel like there i feel wow words are really hard two beers in um, I feel that, uh, cannabis can be a really good medicine 
and for someone who struggles a lot with um, socialization, so, so, socializing with other people, um, I think it's a great medicine to use. I'm not saying it should be used as a crutch, um, but I do think that, you know, there's like taking the cannabis medicine and then there's like the after effects of many days of just like being like your muscles just like relax. And I feel like that's a really useful uh, medicine. I feel like that's really useful for all people who want to be available to them. Um, so definitely buying weed in the dumpster was pretty good. Um, to relate to that, I've also found like uh, opiates in a dumpster. And um, yeah, exactly. If you couldn't see Gummy's face, which is literally <laughs> all of you, it's just like... Um, God damn it. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's one of those things where I, you know, I feel like you know, if I were to get injured and I needed some pain-killing medicine, um, I feel like that'd be really useful. Um, but for someone like me, I mean, a lot of people in my family have abused opiates and like the longer they were there, um, in my possession, I was like, I don't like having these with me. Um, I'm not saying that opiates are wrong. If you use opiates, you are a bad person, but it's definitely, it's, it can be definitely playing with fire. So be careful out there. My feelings are hurt. I could use that medicine right now. Um, damn. Good Lord. People ask me all the time, what's your favorite thing you found in a dumpster? You win. <laughs> My God. <laughs> I remember when you were coming to the antisocial socials and like bringing this like, not just like raggedy old dumpster beer, but like high dollar, high octane gourmet shit. And you're like, yeah, I pulled that out of the dumpster. <laughs> like, God damn. The student has surpassed the master. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. So, Tabessin's very generously brought up some uh, beer to drink while we're doing this interview. It is, like, my favorite beer, Dragon's Milk. I did buy it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is not dumpster dive. <laughs> but it is 11% alcohol. So, we're, I've got one more question, because if we drink much more of this, we're going to hit the wrong button and erase the whole goddamn thing. So, <laughs> um, my last question is, what is something you wish people understood about the world around them? Like, and remember, this is the last question. So, you know, coupled with that, any final thoughts, any final things that you want to express? And uh, what I like to tell people when I interview them is imagine, imagine you're going to die tomorrow and you got the news. Like, this is your last message to the world. I really want to hear what people would want that last message to be. So uh, what I'd want people to understand about the world around them is that they are, they are a part of that world. Like this is something that we are a part of and that like you don't have to feel that you're separated from it. I feel like in the civilization that we currently live in, uh, you're kind of taught to view yourself as like kind of separate from that. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, <laughs> Daniel Quinn. Yeah. Um, uh, again, just like coming back to just like the exploitation of animals. Like I really wish that people didn't separate themselves from animals. Um, I, I, you know, it's, I don't know. It's, I just, I just, I wish people had more respect for the world around them, whether it's animals or plants or fungi, or just like, uh, this park here, this bench here. I just, I just wish there was more respect, uh, for everyone. And I mean, I'll be damned if I died tomorrow. I'd say there's a lot of other things I wish I could have done, but I just, you know, it's 
I think it's really important to try to live a life where you feel like you are doing the things that you want to do. Um, and that should be, that should be your priority. Um, and you can do that while feeling connected to the world around you. Um, and that's something that I, I try to tell my kids that I try, I try to tell my peers that though. I feel like I don't directly be like, Hey, Hey Gumby, you should do the things that you want to do. Like that sounds so weird. Um, but I do, I don't know. I want people to respect each other. Um, I also, I, I don't know because like, in this world, there are a lot of different people from different cultures and even different people within those cultures. And um, I think a lot of people get really bogged down on the differences between each other. And I think those differences, they can affect other people, um, especially when they try to control one thing over another. Um, but people have a lot more in common with each other than you think. And um, I I just, I, I don't know. I... Uh, it's, I sound like, I don't know, some dumb pacifist or something, but I just wish everyone would get along. Um, I'm not saying I'm a pacifist. I'm, I don't know if I am. That's like an entirely different thing, but I do, I don't know. You have a lot more in common, uh, with other people. Um, and sometimes you acknowledge that, but sometimes it's really hard to see what that is. Um, and just, uh, I don't know, try to try to stay safe out there. Try to feel, just feel that you are connected to the world around you. I do a lot from foraging. Um, that is how I have come to that path. Uh, I think spending as much time outside is the best way to do that. But I, I do that through foraging, and I highly recommend that. Um, but there are other things you can do. I, I've, I've re really, basket making has been something I've taken up recently. And to get back to what you've said about teaching people how to make baskets, um, I... Something that comes up a lot whenever I make baskets and I teach other people to make baskets is that you are making your basket and it's gonna be it's gonna be partly what you want it to look like, like because you're putting it together um, with your hands, maybe your feet. I don't know. You may not have hands or some shit, um, but you're also you're working with other materials that they are not they are influenced by you, but they're not a part of you. And your basket it's gonna look like partly what you want it to look like, but partly what it's going to look like um and i tell people about this because like that's kind of like how friendship works like you can influence your friends but your friends are going to do the things that they're going to do um and you need to come to terms with that before I interject I'll hand it right back. yeah i just want to interject real quick because uh i love that advice for one thing i've said the same thing um exactly the same thing to kids making spoons it's going to be half what you want and half what it's going to be so I love that you're saying that. And uh, the other thing is, are you familiar with the book Baskets from Nature's Bounty? Can't remember who wrote it. But if you're not, check out that book. That, like, people that do baskets, that's like the Bible of it. It tells you incredible information, not only on how to do baskets, but what materials to use, when to gather them. I mean, the information is incredible. Baskets from Nature's Bounty. All right. Another book to look for slash pirate, maybe. We'll see where it goes. Um, I, I just want to share my gratitude, um, for, uh, to Gumby and Teresa to, uh, letting me, uh, see them in this fucking crazy ass time. I just haven't seen a lot of people to be honest. And, um, uh, I mean, I have seen a lot of kids, don't get me wrong. Holy shit. But let's just like, you know, people I haven't seen in a while. Um, it's good to see you guys. And I, I hope I've, I've taught something to this wild ass world that we're in 
And to if you have questions for me personally, um, perhaps you can reach through Gumby and Teresa. They might convey it to me, but they're their own person. They're going to do the things they're going to do. So good luck. And thank you so much for this interview. And I really appreciate what you're, uh, you know, <laughs> we listen to this podcast called Resistance Radio, hosted by Derek Jensen. And what he always tells people is, thank you for your work in the world. So that's basically what I'm telling you in our way, in our hobo way. Thank you for your work in the world. I really appreciate what you're doing out there. So uh, I guess that concludes our interview. So goodbye. Well, that was my first interview, other than interviewing Teresa. Teresa got the the jump on me interviewing my mom last season. And, um, you know, again, thanks to Tabessens and I learned a lot about interviewing people, uh, mostly stuff that doesn't work. So um, I had a lot of fun interviewing Teresa. I mean, not Teresa. I'm drinking more beer right now. <laughs> interviewing Tabessens. Yeah, my interview was horrible. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different discussion. And um, yeah, a lot of fun. And like he shared so much great information. Like it was just a really enjoyable experience. And um, yeah. Uh, like editing, like, wow, I've learned so much about how to just edit and like work with this iPad and everything. So what did you think, Teresa? What are some thoughts? I saw you jotting down some stuff. Oh, I, I was jotting a lot, (laughs) but I will, um, try to only hit the, the bigger points here. So one, yeah, Gumby, uh, at least online as well as in real life, I suppose he can be a little intimidating to people because he does not back down from uh, a challenging conversation. What do you think is the most intimidating thing about me? Is it my my sizable muscles or <laughs> the the penis dragging the ground behind me? I think just the the whole thing in general is yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just think that Tabessens was really stunning and brave to <laughs> to accept the challenge of being interviewed by Gumby. Um, and I really liked that he, Tabessens, um, was able to hear from other people that he works with and that, um, his peers and everything that he has inspired people to make their own choices that make sense. And I really liked how he was talking about that elementary school teacher and just how, you know, there are so many things in this world that are so stupid, like laws and rules and this and that, and it just doesn't make any sense. The world is so big and complex, even at the city and town level, like just things just don't make sense. But to be able to cultivate, um, especially in children, how they, kids are thinking and they understand a lot. Um, we don't give them credit nearly enough for that. Um, but yeah, just cultivating communication um, and just questioning the world around them. And God, his dumpster finds so envious. I loved how he called it like what the natural like <laughs> he put it on par with like foraging. Yeah, this I found this beer and to me, in the wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the wilds of North Carolina. <laughs> to me, that's kind of the essence of scavenging because I see it as the same thing too. Like it's not pretending like we're living 300 years ago. It's putting it all together. So finding garbage, scavenging. Uh, upcycling litter. To me, that's all the same thing. And uh, yeah, I, I just really love the way he worded that part. And and again, just his final thoughts, like 
we are not separate from this world. And just thinking about, you know, right now it being winter, the, uh, the foraging and, um, even the water, like they turned the water off in our local parks at the water fountains cause it was getting to be freezing temperatures. And it's not that we're without water. We collect it from the rain. We sometimes collect it from the Creek, but, um, the fear that's associated even with dumpster diving, you know, like, is this laced with something? I mean, there's so much fear and it doesn't have to be this way. Like we are directly causing the pollution that is affecting the water supply. We can stop polluting. We are not stopping. So, you know, if you think about, oh, the only way I can get safe water is to buy it from the store. I mean, <laughs> I just, it, it baffles me. Like it's one of those things that it's just, that isn't complex. Like our habits are our own habits that we can do something about. Um, but yeah, I just really liked that he was saying the connection there, the whole connection with nature. Yeah. Well, thank you, Teresa. And I'd like to say, as we're closing this up, um, one of the things that occurs to me that I really enjoy about how these interviews are going is that we're interviewing real people. You know, like we listen to different podcasts and I like listening to the the experts, you know, even though I don't consider anybody really an expert, but to hear, you know, more informed opinions about topics. But uh, man, what I really like is just hearing everyday people talk because I feel like, I don't know, I don't even know how to verbalize that, but there's, there's something more true that comes through that. And, uh, I really enjoy that. And I hope I, I hope we can continue that, you know, interviewing just real people, you know, doing like what they do. And I hope to be able to interview people that disagree with me more strongly, you know, that we can just mutually, you know, not name calling, not shaming, whatever the fuck, you know, just be able to ask each other challenging questions. Cause don't you have questions of people that think like diametrically opposed to you that you're like, how the fuck do they think that? Why is nobody like able to ask that? I don't, I don't find enough conversations like that. And I really want to have those conversations. So, um, yeah, I hope we can go in that direction. And it's funny, like I slipped and said his name, which he wanted to keep out the name we know him by and it erased itself. (laughs) That's one of the parts that got erased. So that was pretty cool. But anyway, um, if you have any questions or comments, please contact us. The best way to do it is to go to our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in bluets, black trumpets, and blue indigos. Wow. .com. Yeah, I remembered that. And we have a Facebook page found at Escaping Society. Um if you go to our website, we have a donate button, which we're really happy to have there. So if you can make a financial contribution, that is very helpful to our hobo lifestyle. And if not, please write something, um, a word of encouragement, a sentence, crank out a sentence, you lazy bastards, a challenge, <laughs> a joke, anything. My God. Mm. But, um, yeah, so <laughs> there's that. Um And we have a YouTube video. So like we said earlier, you know, about some of these mushrooms mentioned and many other things. We're trying to uh, build that up so people can see some, uh, you know, what we're learning. Real people doing real stuff. Real people doing real shit. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. 
We were real people doing real shit yesterday at the car wash, washing our van, you know, as we do at the <laughs> beginning of every month. And just us being real people doing real shit, we had two separate people come up to us and offer us money. So I don't know what we look like from the outside, because to me, it didn't look pitiful or anything. It just looked like what we do. But apparently it looks like people like homeless people with all their crap strewn all over the parking lot until we put the van back together. We were given a total of $50 yesterday. And two oranges. And two oranges. Not not asking for it, just cleaning out our van. So that was a, uh, that's one of the things I like about the way we live is, you know, it seems to attract kindness. Yeah. I see the kindness in people, and I'm a very bitter person. I'm a uh, misanthrope. I fucking hate people. But it it's pretty hard to ignore that there's something good in people as well. And uh, if I don't live like this, I don't see it. If I'm just looking out for myself, they look out for themselves, and I just get lost in that that illusion that there's nothing but rotten fucking people. What did you say so, about vul- being vulnerable? Yeah, being vulnerable, putting yourself out there. You know, if somebody offers you money, like, saying thank you. Not, not having your pride, like, I don't need that. No, I mean, it was just a beautiful act. It was a beautiful act for them to give, and it was a beautiful act for me to receive, and I, I, I'm thankful for stuff like that. Me too. So, with that note... um. Hopefully you'll tune back in next week, and uh, I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next week, but we'll find out. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone over that next horizon.